There are no easy answers to the questions we're asking this fall as we spend the fall season taking the lectionary, the prescribed text for each Sunday, and using the Old Testament text to let a question come, and taking the gospel reading to seek wisdom for an answer. It's been a wonderful opportunity, I think, to look at those two uh, sections from, e from our lectionary each week. It's giving our choir a chance to sing to us from the Old Testament, sing to us the Hebrew text of mostly the Psalms, and also to offer to us a Christian anthem. It's an interesting opportunity to look at old and new and to look at our lives in the people of ancient Israel and to recognize that their questions are our questions. And as Christians do, to look to Jesus for some wisdom. So we turn again today to the Old Testament, to a passage from uh, the book of Jeremiah and a situation in the life of ancient Israel that brings to mind a rather difficult question. Someone occasionally will see my truck and the bumper sticker on my truck and they ask me what language that is that my bumper sticker is written in. Well, of course, it's English. It says simply, eschew obfuscation. You know, avoid making things difficult to understand. Eschew obfuscation. It is my personal philosophy I'm quite serious about this, let me explain. You see, I know that people need truth communicated simply. Avoid making things difficult to understand. I also know that boiling down life's great issues into some kind of bumper sticker soundbite inevitably and always fails great truth. It's like a theoretical physicist trying to explain his work to me. His language is calculus and advanced mathematics, so without speaking the language of mathematics, how could I ever understand the universe? One of the great injustices of much preaching is that it tries to make the hardest truths in the world fit on a bumper sticker. Spiritual life, biblical narratives, God. Is the most important but most difficult truth there is. Yet preachers want to boil it down to simplicity. So I hope you understand the conundrum. I want it to be understandable. I really do. Otherwise, I'm wasting your time. But simplified theology is hardly theology at all. You understand? Issue obfuscation. I give this convoluted introduction because today's text and topic are not easy. I'm sorry. Making it easy as many want to do would be to miss the point, even to contradict the point. You have to listen carefully to get it, and many folks just don't want to. You see, the question we're dealing with today is theology. It's bad theology. And what I want to say is we really need less theology. And some of you agree with that. But here's the rub. I think it takes more theology to get to less theology. You've got to be willing to look and be able to look again 
and read again and see again and think again about text like today's text before you can begin to simplify. So it's eschew obfuscation all over again. The easy way to read today's text is just to read it at face value, as many people want to do. A drought has set in upon the ancient Israelites, and as people always do, someone says, why? Why, God? Why us? Why me? Why are you doing this? What does God have against us? And Jeremiah, who last week gave the hard, difficult, good answer, this week gives us the easy answer. He says the drought is God's punishment. Here's the text. Judah mourns and her gates languish. They lie in gloom on the ground and the cry of Jerusalem goes up. Her nobles send their servants for water. They come to the cisterns and return with their vessels empty. The ground is cracked. There has been no rain on the land. Even the doe in the field forsakes her newborn fawn because there is no grass. Why? Thus says the Lord concerning this people, truly they have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet you know, from wandering away from me. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now God will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. The Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. Although they fast, I do not hear their cry. By the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, I consume them. Amen? Hard words, aren't they? The Lord does not accept them. God will consume them. It is the easiest answer. You hear it all the time still today. Following the 9-11 terror attacks, Jerry Falwell now infamously said, the ACLU has got to take a lot of blame for this. In addition to the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who have helped this to happen. Unfortunately, bad theology is not just for Christians. Israeli ultra-Orthodox ultra rabbi Ovadia Yosef called Hurricane Katrina God's punishment for President Bush's support of the August 2005 withdrawal of the Jewish settlers from the Gaza Strip. This and the fact that black people in New Orleans don't read the Torah. That's what he said. And following that same hurricane, a headline in a Kuwaiti newspaper read, the terrorist Katrina is one of the soldiers of Allah. And the article quoted a Kuwaiti official who said, it is almost certain that this is a wind of torment and evil that Allah has sent to this American empire. God's punishment. It is bad theology. And it is in the Bible. Now some people would have a hard time hearing me say that at all. It's in the Bible. 
If you want a proof text of divine retribution, you will find many examples. But most thoughtful Christians that I know today do not believe God controls the weather to use natural disasters as divine punishment. Do you believe that? What do we do with a text like today's text that says exactly that? For starters, we have to acknowledge that there is nothing we can do with a text like that, nothing more we can do with a text like that if we are not willing to go farther than a surface reading of the text. Jeremiah says God sent the drought, period. So if, you are, are, if you're just trying to preach simple truth, if you just want simple theology, it ends there. God sent the drought to Israel, and God inflicted Hurricane Katrina upon New Orleans, and if you are not faithful, God will send a tsunami your way too. Amen, the end. But if you are willing to think again, to examine your theology a little more closely. There is a different way to read. In Jesus' day, there was a natural disaster. A tower in Siloam had fallen, crushing 18 people under its weight. And some of the rabbis had said this was God's punishment. The disciples came to Jesus asking about it. And Jesus said, do you think that they were worse offenders than all others living in Jerusalem? Is this why this happened? Because they sinned more? And then he said emphatically, no. No, I tell you. But then he says, but unless you repent, you will die too. But no, the tower didn't fall because God sent it for their sinful. You see, we could pit one verse of Scripture against another verse of Scripture all day long. The wrath of God, the mercy of God. And I think the only outcome is probably that we would end up reinforcing our own initial bias. It is worth noting the differing theologies in the Bible. You can find divine retribution in the Bible. It's there. What are you going to do with that? Ta Biblia, the Greek word for the Bible, means the books, plural, not the book. And seeing competing ideas, even within this inspired collection, should be helpful to us. But finally, to which theology are we going to turn? Retribution or grace? They're both there. Dr. Frank Tupper says, I believe in God because I believe in Jesus, not the other way around. Without God, without Jesus, God is just some noble idea. So let us look to Jesus, the book of Hebrews says, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What does Jesus show us about divine retribution? How does Jesus punish those who sinned against him? 
You know the answer. He does not. And neither does God. By choosing a life of self-sacrifice, Jesus' death subverts the powers that be and demonstrates that the only power is love. And that love only and always manifests itself not in punishment, but in faithfulness. Today's question is about theology. How have you been punished by bad theology? And who is being abused today by the fear and the wrath of an angry God? Jeremiah says God punishes with natural disasters. And the cross of Jesus Christ, which should be the lens through which we understand all Scripture, Jesus says to us, think again. Please think again. We return to Luke's Gospel for another parable. Jesus also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, and even like that tax collector over there. Why, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, because that's where he would have been, would not even look up to heaven but was beating his breast and saying, God, 
Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. You have heard the ancient story. In our series of questions and answers, Russ is posing a question from the Old Testament and I'm trying to find some kind of response, maybe even some kind of answer from the New Testament. And if you were here last week, you might remember that the answer that I offered wasn't just for that one question, but I argued that the parable that Jesus told about the persistent widow might be an answer to all of life's questions persistence. Well, Jesus is at it again this week with a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector giving us an answer to any and all of life's questions. I'm going to mix things up for you a little bit and I'm going to go ahead and give you the answer at the beginning of the sermon instead of holding it until the end because I know you just sit there with bated breath just waiting for the answer that I'm going to give you in the last sentence. Well, today I'm going to give it to you up front because isn't that what we are inclined to want anyway? The answers up front. So we don't have to think quite so much. We just want the answer like life is one long fill-in-the-blank test and our goal in the end is to make an A. Well, to satisfy your needs, here's the answer. Doesn't really matter what the question is, here's the answer. Humility. Wow, that was so easy. Had we all known that that's all the answer is to everything, humility, we can just go home now. But the only problem is humility is not very easy to practice. Trust me, I've tried this week. I've tried extra hard this week to work on my humility so that I could come to you today with some great examples of how humble I have been this week. <laughs> I'm glad that you get the irony. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you how humble I've been this week. Because the truth is, as I've tried to practice it, I've realized that I'm not very good at it. We read this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and our immediate prayer becomes, if we are honest, thank you, God, that I am not like that Pharisee who is so judgmental and holier than thou. And in our very prayer, we become him, building ourselves up by putting someone else down. And we do it all the time. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy that stands on the street corner, probably unwilling to work. Trust me. For two solid weeks now, I have been dealing with issues of poverty, not my own, but someone else's. And I can tell you there is no harder job in America today than the job of being poor. Thank you, God, that I'm not like the guy that never has a nice thing to say about anyone. 
Thank you, God, that I'm not the one who got laid off. Thank you, God, that I'm not one of the 15 students that failed that test. Thank you, God, that I'm not the one whose house got blown away by a tornado. Thank you, God, that my marriage is not like theirs, that my children are not like theirs, that my life is not like theirs. For you see, those prayers are built off comparing ourselves to others when the only one life that we can truly live is our own, regardless of others. In several articles I read about this parable, they even suggested that every time we utter this phrase, there but for the grace of God go I, we are falling into the trap of the righteous and the, and the pious Pharisee. He's not evil or sinister. The Pharisee is faithful in his prayers. He is faithful in his giving. He's probably faithful in most every aspect of his life with maybe one exception, humility. And the tax collector, he's not all that great, especially if he gets up the next morning after his prayer and goes about gouging people and over charging them and squandering the money for himself like tax collectors were known to do. It's not so simple, is it? This parable this week has surely kept me from chiming in on a local situation like I have wanted to. I'll not call names, but it's been all over the news and social media has had a heyday with it. This story has left me saying in my head, of course, because I don't want to be like a Pharisee that would say these things out loud as if there's any difference. But this week has left me saying, thank you, God, that I'm not like some pastors who build extravagant houses and make ungodly amounts of money but rather make me like the new pope who turned down the more palatial abode for a modest apartment in the Vatican. But you see, I've been studying this parable this week and I can't say it though I want to so bad. <laughs> because I live in the South Park Mall area. And I have a house with more square footage than I need. And I have a boat and a motorcycle and a camper. Now the camper is nothing to write home about or boast about. But the motorcycle and the boat, they're pretty nice. <laughs> so can I really thank God that I'm not like him when I live such a life of privilege and luxury? You remember the fill-in-the-blank answer, don't you? Humility, Amy. Always answer humility. 
because we are a people that love answers and we feel that we have to come up with an explanation for everything and we have to work God into every explanation in a way that protects God from our own answers. Thank you, God, that I don't believe in you the way I used to. Thank you, God, that I have progressed to a more enlightened way and I no longer hold to a theology based on retribution and punishment. Thank you, God, that I am more open-minded and not like those fundamentalists. Thank you, God, that I'm in a church where women are not subordinate. Thank you, God, that I'm, well, I'm supposed to say, humble. But I can't because of the vicious cycle of the life of humble faith. Just when I think that I have arrived, just when I think I've got it figured out, just when I think I have the answers and I understand it, I cease to be humble. The prophets like Jeremiah suffered mightily from this. The Pharisees that were too righteous and too pious suffered mightily from this. I suffer, you suffer. In our quest for God and understanding who God is and how God is at work in the world, we are so tempted to be right when all we need is to be humble. Trusting in a God that is present in the drought and in the floods. Trusting in a God that is present in luxurious houses and under bridges. Trusting in a God that is present in churches and mosques and temples, as well as in nature and around kitchen tables. Trusting in a God that is present in dialysis and chemo rooms, as well as in baby nurseries. Trusting in a God that is present with rich and poor, male and female. A God that is present in the line of tragedy and a God that is present in the line of goodness and joy. Trusting in a God that is present with me and with you. We are inclined to either overthink or underthink. We are all products of theology, good and bad. And in the end, our only truly honest answer, and I promise it is written right here, the only truly honest answer is, I don't know. But I trust. I still believe. I still practice faith, not fact. And I pray that my own arrogance will not get in the way. So the answer is humility. Before one another and before Almighty God, so perhaps our prayer should really be this. 
Thank you, God, that I am. Help me to be. May it be so. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, in a world so filled with people searching for you, even if they do not search for you by name, they are searching. We look for something that is easy for us to understand and we recognize that there are so many people out there who are left baffled by you and by all that your church does. So much of it good, so much of it confusing. So we pray for people this day who have left the church and left faith because they have been hindered by your very own servants. Show us your way of justice. Show us your way of grace. Show us your way of goodness and your way of love. And keep us forever with a humble spirit that we might constantly be searching for you. We pray this in the name of the one who taught us.